it's really funny. Um, you know how most people like when they get on Twitter or they get online, they use it to like be the mean persona that they aren't actually in real life. Oh, like a troll? Yeah. Yes. Or like just whatever. So <laughs> because I'm like traditionally a very hard or mean person, I have taken to using Twitter to be pretend nice. That is like the exact opposite that most people use it for. And I don't, it's working out really well. Like when people say mean things to me, I'm like, thank you so much for your opinion. Like, I really appreciate you. And I've had a couple people apologize to me. Wow. Yeah. That's so, unprecedented. Guys, if you're watching all of this on Twitter, just know I'm not really that nice in person. <laughs> I am a huge, huge D-bag. <laughs> thought you should know I just I can't even go near Twitter it scares me it's, I am so <laughs> so we have over 2,000 followers now so maybe three to four times a week we get somebody who's like and I mean I post about four times a day I don't have time to fact check everything no so I have like four you know three times a week people are like that's not even true <laughs> half of that's not true that statement blah, 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 blah. and I'm like thanks yeah <laughs> good on you all right I'll fix it yeah thank you <laughs> and they're like oh my god I'm so sorry I blew up like that I've had a couple people so whatever. well I'm sure because the usual reaction is like well fuck you yeah. you know and it's normally like aggressiveness right back yeah. you know what I'm saying so um well the thing that we've been posting about and talking about <laughs> online and changing our personas for <laughs> is a podcast called Herstory on the rocks with Katie and Allie and Today, we are here to tell you stories about famous women in history. And we talk about good women and bad women and mm -hmm. fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. Absolutely. But before you go deep down this rabbit hole, know that we will be drunk by the end of it because we're drinking the entire time. And we are not historians as we just said and how we have we don't fact check our twitter but i will say <laughs> we don't i will say that we do have official scientist yes we misty do. bence official pirate doctor jamie goodall and we've interviewed other historians that like like us have in our back pocket to be like hey that thing you said about 1812 wasn't true wasn't right and we can be like thank you Exactly like we do on our Twitter page all the time. Just thank you for correcting me. Because it's not wrong to be wrong as long as you're willing to accept the right. Hell and yeah. You can quote me on that. Show up. I think that I said the right thing. <laughs> I don't know what you said. <laughs> Maybe um, I'm wrong and then it's wrong to be wrong, but I don't know. So Here's the deal. You're busy right now. <laughs> you are. You're tip-tap typing away on your computer writing your memoir. Oh, my. Your memoir. And because it's all in your head, because it's your story, you don't need to be listening to something else. You're listening to stories about other women. Right. And you don't have time to stop and look up a picture of them. So we're just no. going to tell you. We don't want to interrupt your creative flow. We don't. With pictures and Google. You're on a typewriter. You don't have time for that. Yeah, because you want to do it the old-fashioned way. Exactly. You mess up, you scrap the whole page. Whole page. Gone. So in order to paint a picture in your mind of what these women look like, we're going to get a little physical. Physical. Allie, who are you covering and what does she look like? I am doing Zenadia Portnova. Ooh. And she has 
dark hair and pale skin with these big, like dark eyes. If she had lived to adulthood, which spoiler, she doesn't, she would have been just stunningly gorgeous there's one famous picture of her that has these two like long pigtail braids and like i swear to god she could have played wednesday adams Mm -hmm. like that's exactly what she looks like um so i mean she's a kid Mm -hmm. uh in some of the pictures you know when she's really young she's got like a rounder face and a bit of a smirk but that smile definitely faded away as she entered her mid to late teens and became a very serious young lady wow all right (laughs) who are you doing and what do they look like i am doing elizabeth or lizzie siddle So she had a very petite but willowy thin frame Hmm. and extremely pale skin and golden brown, slightly wide set eyes, all framed by this long, flowing, deep red hair. But to say it better, I will quote, her complexion looked as if a rose tint lay beneath the white skin, producing a most soft and delicate pink for the darkest flesh tone. Her eyes were a kind of golden brown agate color is the only word I can think of to describe them and wonderfully luminous in all of Gabriel's drawings of her and in the same type she created in his mind. This is to be seen. I added a word there, but I won't tell you which one. Oh, man. It was accident. In and (laughs) seen? I think it was same. (laughs) Um, But that's what she looked like. Wow. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's my biggest nightmare for someone to describe me as willowy. Really? Yeah. I would hate to be described as willowy. Mm. I don't dislike women who are described as willowy. I just, it's something that I would not want. Well, especially because I do feel like when you describe a woman as looking willowy, you're making a comment about her personality. Yes, you are. And that's not the same if you're like, she has brown hair. Mm. That's not essentially like a description of their personality, but like, they're willowy. You're like, oh, it's almost like there's a wink attached (laughs) to it. You held that wink for too long. It was uncomfortable. I'm sorry. Um, Um, Tell me what I'm drinking because it looks so healthy. I'm calling this Ophelia's Delight. And you're going to find out why once we get into the story. And so it is two ounces of vanilla vodka. And that's a triple sec. Um, It it smells so good. A teaspoon to tablespoon, whatever you taste, of sugar. And a drop of almond extract and you garnish it with like floating flowers, which we'll also find out why. Um, And before you comment on the Instagram page, like I'm sure that the ones I used are not edible because they were the only ones available at Home Depot today. (laughs) So great. They've got COVID-19 all over. Probably. (laughs) Mm, Very good. Very interesting. I feel like you know how I want to like martinis, but I can't. Yes, this, this is could how be I a secret. Be. Oh, this could pretend. be our secret. Yes, because I literally w- I wanted it to be clear as like water because we're gonna find out why. It really is clear as water. Like it looks like you just put water in my cup out of the faucet. Exactly. And if I wanted to, I could just later retake the photo with different flowers that are edible, and you wouldn't know because I it literally looks like water. It's insane. But it's very flavorful. Also, I mean, just a shout out here. Baltimore water tastes great. Mm, Baltimore City water is top of the game. My mom has told me for years. She's like, did you know that Baltimore has the best like water? Not in the harbor. In, yeah, not in, in the, the faucets. Harbor. Don't swim in it. <laughs> but out of our faucets comes liquid gold. Um, so <laughs> not All right. true. What do you know about Lizzie Siddle? Uh, I think she was an artist. Um, and that's really all I know. I know 
that she was willowy. Okay. <laughs> but no, this is a request episode. It is. Charles V., one of our male listeners, mm-hmm. which are few in numbers. And he also pointed us towards Lee Miller, which I want to greatly thank him for. Because if you have not listened to that Lee Miller episode, you absolutely should. It's great. I even like summarized it for Jake, our producer. Yeah. And he was like, hell yeah, that's cool. Hitler's bathtub? Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, it's so funny because... It's a little teaser for There's <laughs> a bathtub involved in this story, too. And no. I was like, ooh, like a bathtub gin fizz. And I was like, fuck, I already did that. I was like, for another one of Charles's requests for Lee Miller. Listen, Charles, thank you. Thank you. He he comments and likes our stuff on Instagram and Twitter. He's Love great. It. So thank you, Charles. Thank you for this request. It is truly a, a just a really interesting story that I didn't know existed. Great. Which more, is the point of this podcast. More male feminism. Please. More. Okay. So uh, I got a lot of this from two different podcasts, Deviant Women, um, who I used for my Margaret Sanger episode too. They're Australian and they're great. Um, and footnoting history. And then, of course, like Wikipedia and some online articles. So Elizabeth Eleanor Siddle was born on July 25th, 1829 in London. So we're in the 1800s and we're in London. Just paint a picture. And smog. Yep, exactly. <laughs> but apparently the discovery of her birthday is like a story in itself. So like many women throughout history, we are lucky just to even have her name. Because so many women get lost. But a historian, Marion Edwards, wanted to find her. So in the 70s, he searched desperately in all these old texts and articles to uncover the truth. And he eventually like found her exact date of birth. Because it makes a really big difference for historians when, reachers, when researching someone. Because you're like, I know this happened in 1859, but like, was she 13 or was she 30 when she got married? You know, or whatever it is. It makes a big difference. You have to set up the background. You absolutely do. And then like that leads you into like, was this strange for a woman of her age or was it normal for a woman of her age? Right. And I mean, just think about people who were born in 1995 versus people that were born in 2003. Mm -hmm. That's the difference of before and after 9-11. The world is so different. You have to know. You have to know. Exactly. So good on you, Marion. Way to dig. Uh, Elizabeth or Lizzie's family was not particularly wealthy, but her father, Charles, made a good living with his cutlery business. He made like forks and knives. That's great. (laughs) Um, she was named after her mother. Um, and that's why she kind of went by Lizzie from a very young age. That's what we're going to call her from the rest of this story. She's Elizabeth Jr. So Lizzie. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, fun fact. I tried to rename myself Lizzie in the third grade because there were two Katie's in my class and there were only three girls. So the chances of two out of three girls in my class named Katie are unbelievable. That's wild. I tried to rename myself Lexi after (gasps) Jurassic Park came out because my name's Alexandra and I was going by Allie. See, and I was going to go by Lizzie because my middle name is Elizabeth. How fun would this podcast be if we were Lizzie, <gasps> Lizzie and Lexi? And Lexi. Uh, <laughs> everybody calls that from now on. We missed the boat. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so we're stuck with our stupid names. <laughs> so <laughs> also it didn't stick. And my teacher got so mad at me. She like held up her paper and she was like, there's only three girls. Who's Lizzie? <laughs> like, <laughs> Listen, you don't understand how often I have to do that for students. Lots of kids go through name transformations. I sat in a parent-teacher conference where I called a kid PJ, and the mom was like, who's PJ? (laughs) He 
changed his name without telling her on the first day of sixth grade. Great. It's great news. Love it. Let me tell you, don't be afraid to reinvent yourself. Doesn't matter how old. If I would have stuck to Lizzie, maybe I'd be a different person. (laughs) Maybe a a better person. person. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. So we know that she knew how to read and write, but we have no idea if she went to school or learned it at home. There really just isn't much on her early life. But she we know that she grew to love poetry and art when she was a child. Tennyson was her favorite poet. And I just love that we don't know anything about her childhood, but we know (laughs) that someone used a piece of paper with one of his poems on it to wrap a cube of butter in. And she unwrapped the butter and found a Tennyson poem and was like, this is it. Like, this is life. (laughs) Yo, if you can read back then. Game changer. Right. So from then on, she wrote her own poetry and she explored her artistic side for years to come. But as of right now, she's in her like early 20s. She's working in a millinery, which is like a hat shop and she like a dressmaking shop. So she's putting feathers and caps. She's sewing hems. And it is here that she met a man named Walter Deverell, who would change her life. He came. He was like, apparently he was like walking by the shop, saw her inside, saw her bright red hair and willowy limbs and thought, I must paint you. So she was like, sure, okay. Not realizing that she was about to enter the circle of the pre-Raphaelite brotherhood. Oh, man. I don't even... That sounds fancy. (laughs) They were definitely trying to be, and they had the money to be. So the group was founded by painters John Everett Malaise, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, and William Holman Hunt, after Hunt and Malaise had met one another at the Royal Academy of Art. Which is where, like, you had to have a lot of money to go. And women were not allowed to attend, even though two of the founding members of the Royal Academy of Art were women. Which is what we like to call side sexism. (laughs) So, they named that. (laughs) You're welcome. I feel like it needed a theme in our show Mm -hmm. because it happens a lot where we're telling someone else's story and you're like hey by the way but like there's also a little bit of sexism going here that you might not know about so they named themselves the pre-raphaelites because they wanted art to go back to the way it was before raphael they felt that everything that came after him ruined art they were unsatisfied with the state of the art world And they sought to create a new wave by bringing back old styles. They wanted to revive the style of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. I like to think of it as podcasts bringing back old-timey radio shows. (laughs) You know what? Why not? Why not? This is the last... Podcasts are the last Wild West, man. Let me tell you. It is so important that... Honestly, I also... And I really do believe this. I think it's important that like homegrown podcasts still exist, too. Because... At this time, there are a lot of celebrities and like, you know, corporations that have podcasts and that's totally fine. We're down for it. It's also one of those mediums that like you really should find some like homegrown podcasts to support because as much as I love like Conan O'Brien's podcast and NPR and NPR, you know, like they make so much money off of that. And like we are doing this to bring you information, you know, for free that because we love you. So 
just a little plug for that. And we like excuses to get drunk, okay? <sighs> yeah. I mean, if Allie and I have to drink together once a week and talk to each other. We may as well do hours of research. We might as well record it and, <laughs> and put too much effort into it. <laughs> so the pre-Raphaelites... <laughs> <laughs> who were I think of them as like the hipsters of their generation oh yeah they were like I liked Raphael before yeah. <laughs> he was like Raphael the 1890s are alive in Portland that's a really good sketch give me a break <laughs> <laughs> that's a good so, old Ninja Turtles joke for really you good. <laughs> so they had four accord declarations to have genuine ideas to express oh my to study nature attentively so as to know how to express them, to sympathize with what is direct and serious and heartfelt in previous art to the exclusion of what is conventional and self-parading and learned by rote. And most indispensable of all, to produce thoroughly good pictures and statues. (laughs) Those were their four core declarations. Listen, if you're going to have a clubhouse, you need to have your rules posted. That's very true. Um... (laughs) (laughs) study nature attentively and no girls allowed (laughs) so back to our magical moment at the hat shop Deverell had made seen her and he was like you have to model for me I'm doing this like painting of the 12th night by Shakespeare and I need you to be my viola um and if you don't know who viola is think of Amanda Bynes from she's the man because I love that movie (laughs) Amanda Bynes same exact birthday as producer like day and year year time don't know about time actually but i like to imagine yeah um also shout out to amanda vines i'm so sorry that you're going through what you're going through yeah but also like you shouldn't also say racist stuff which i think she did a while ago on twitter yeah i mean so come on, girl you're famous come get it together so <laughs> like i'm like pray for her also you need to get it together <laughs> that's impressed that's impressed <laughs> wait should we start that logic and math logic yeah logic and math. <laughs> <laughs> numbers and letters um <laughs> so she does this 12th night painting and then other people in the pre-raphael brotherhood are like huh, i'm sorry who is this and she starts modeling for paintings and like most things that women did back in the day artist modeling was considered similar to prostitution so lizzie was not well respected hmm. but she was like Dude, if I sit for one portrait, I earn what I get in about a month from working at that goddamn hat shop. So I don't care what you think. And becoming a mad hatter. Exactly. So the pre-Raphaela Brotherhood is just completely entranced by her because she looks very plain and close to nature. But she has this fiery red hair, which is completely entrancing. So one of the brothers, Malaise, thinks, oh my gosh, she would be perfect for the painting I want to do of Ophelia, who, of course, is Hamlet's lover who is driven mad and falls into the river while picking flowers and drowns while she's singing all the while. So in order to get this painting correct, he has her pose floating in a bathtub. So he's like, come to the studio. I'm going to put you in this bathtub. You're going to be wearing this ginormous wedding dress. So she's floating in a bathtub in a big old wedding dress. I want to tell you how heavy wedding dresses are in water. And I know. Yeah, because you Everybody, if you don't know this, I don't, we've never mentioned (laughs) this on the show. At Allie's wedding, it is apparently a tradition that the bridegroom jumps or like, no, throws the bride into the pool. But Jake, fiance, 
no, not fiance. Producer. Producer. He was a fiance at the time. He was a fiance at the time. (laughs) Was a gentleman and he jumped in with you. Yes. But that means that you were in a pool on your wedding day, fully in your wedding dress, makeup, makeup, tiara, everything. Unbelievable. (laughs) The worst part of that is that I had a tiara on. Yeah. (laughs) But then again, because your wedding was amazing and unlike any other wedding I've ever been to. Everyone else then started jumping in the pool. All clothed, fully clothed. I was in a bridesmaid gown. We'll have to, and you had a cast. <laughs> and I had a cast. Your arms. It was up I high. Had a cast, so I, was, I had my arm up in the air. Um, oh and yes, God. we've known each other long enough that I was a bridesmaid in her wedding. Um, and I've known you since you were seven. <laughs> what? Stop it. And the thing was, though, I was very nervous because you put me in an outfit that was like a blue top and a white skirt. And I had bright blue underwear on because I was like, I'm going to match my outfit. And I wasn't expecting to get wet. So it was like very obvious. But Uh, it was great. Super fun wedding. We'll have to post the picture of the entire wedding in the pool. We have to. And also because fiance was there, but we weren't together because we were still playing coy. And he (laughs) came dressed in the most ridiculous outfit. He had a smiley face tie on. He had an orange. (laughs) (laughs) Casey had an emoji tie on before emojis even could exist because we had flip phones. Flip phones, yeah. listen listen if if my wedding doesn't make the history books then i don't know who should oh my gosh anyways um but yeah we'll we'll post photos of that i'm really sorry elizabeth seidel i'm sorry lizzie siddle siddle lizzie (laughs) okay so she's floating in a bathtub (laughs) in in a a wedding wedding dress. dress but He's painting this in the winter, so the water is freezing and apparently was drawn like straight from the Thames. So I'm also sure that it's disgusting. <laughs> and the story goes that he put her in the bathtub and he was like, I'm going to keep it warm. So he places all of these oil lamps and candles underneath of the tub. <laughs> oh my God. In order to at least keep it like a decent temperature. It sounds but like a then, sacrifice. Yeah. But then he's in the moment and he's painting and he doesn't realize that one by one, all of these candles are going out. And then Lizzie is just in this tub, freezing, turning getting blue. all pruny, turning blue for five hours. <gasps> oh, my gosh. And she didn't say anything because she didn't want to lose her job. She was like, I'm just getting into this business. I don't want to go back to the freaking hat shop. Like, I don't want to lose my job. So she's just like... <laughs> How's it looking? And he's like, great. How are you feeling? Like, that was not great even voice acting that you just did. You. Excellent. I should read books. <laughs> um, so, but the painting came out stunning. And if you haven't seen this, I would highly recommend Googling it. And of course, this is the painting I themed my cocktail after because it is the most famous painting of her. And she's just floating. And as Ophelia, she's just kind of has these like hands up. And if you see it, you're going to know what it is. You're going to remember it. Yeah. And she has these like flowers around her. So I wanted to create the illusion of like, you know, like just water with flowers in it. Beautiful. So um, Google that. Uh, we'll also post a picture. Um, but art comes at a price and she developed a terrible case of pneumonia. Oh, I'm sure. So she gets super sick. She has to go to the hospital. <gasps> racks up all these hospital bills. And... Then her dad is like, I'm not paying for this. He goes, make that guy who made you sit in the cold bathtub for five hours pay for it. Fair, fair. And he's like, 
mm, you know what? Shit, you're right. So he pays her doctor's bills because she because her dad was like, I'm going to fucking sue you. Workers comp, man. Exactly. Get it. So she's getting in this new world and she goes kind of through like the first couple brothers and then she meets another man named Dante Rossetti. She starts sitting for him. She becomes his favorite model. He becomes her favorite artist and the two fall madly in love as you do. Also, in a nice twist on these types of stories, they are the same age. They are like one year apart. Oh, cute. Which is, let me tell you, we've been doing this podcast for a while and the age gap is normally enormous when you're talking about like artists and models and like situations like that. Specifically in the 1800s and the Clinton administration. (laughs) (laughs) Not to be too specific, but um, Lizzie is drawn in by his new bohemian lifestyle and she does love that he encouraged her art and poetry, but he's also very controlling. And he wasn't a huge fan of her sitting for other painters. So when they start dating, he's like, okay, yeah, but you can only pose for me, which is especially troublesome because that's how she made money. So now she's like reliant on this guy that she's dating, which is like not how she wanted to be. And he also controlled her in like other strange ways. Like he was like, okay, your name, we're going to have to drop one of those L's. So her name was originally S-I-D-D-A-L-L. But he was like, drop it. And so it's just one L at the end. I mean, it's more aesthetically She's pleasing. Like, no, yeah, it is. <laughs> it is. But like, it's just like one of those weird things where he, a lot of time, like, and I don't want to say like a lot of times, but like from what I understand of like some controlling relationships, they make like little things to kind of push the envelope. You know what I'm saying? And if you do it one at a time, it doesn't seem doesn't like a big seem deal. Like a right? Big because deal. even if you're going to complain to your girlfriends about it, then it's just like, uh, I don't know. He always leaves the cheese wrappers out on the counter and I always have to pick them up. Yeah. And then what's the next thing? Exactly. Yeah. So pick up your cheese. I'm not speaking from experience <laughs> or anything. <laughs> um, I like also that I feel like you're specifically talking about craft singles. Am I right? You are right. <laughs> Store brand craft singles, but yeah. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So her and Rosetti evolve into their ill-fated relationship while she pursues her art and he's like, I'm going to teach you how to make art. And she's like, oh, my gosh, amazing. I've always wanted to be an artist. And he goes, you really learn by teaching yourself. So she so more just- hipster, more <laughs> hipster asshole shit. So he, she's like, OK. And she just starts painting. And she kind of develops into more of like an impressionist style because she's literally teaching herself. And she doesn't have the fancy Royal Academy lessons on like, you know, the body and freaking anatomy and and drawing humans is the hardest it's thing really hard so she starts just teaching herself and i would really recommend looking up her her pictures because they're very interesting and they look very impressionist and they're very different from what the pre-raphaelites were doing and she's really famous for her just like pencil drawings like she has really interesting pencil drawings but i want to really point people towards her self-portrait She did a self-portrait and it's very interesting because as a young woman who had been painted by every other man in the art world as this ethereal nymph with flowing red hair and dewy skin with like just rose blemish underneath, she was like, well, this is how I actually look like. (laughs) She's like, my hair is usually pulled back. My complexion is not perfect and my eyes look tired sometimes and I'm a real person. And it's really interesting to see women take that other turn of like, Hey, like sometimes I just look like a regular ass bitch and like it's the most simple 
portrait and it just has a green background and with her red hair it just I love seeing people's self-portraits because it's what she thought of herself. Right. And I mean, it's it's the same way that like people post pictures of themselves today, like no filter or yeah. with no makeup mm-hmm. or like this is how I actually look or like those workout people who do like a picture of themselves standing up and then do one of them sitting down and they're like, look, oh my gosh. even when I'm sitting down, I have rolls on my stomach. Look at me. People. I really do want to tell people this because like when you like look like when you get ads on your Instagram for like, you know, weight loss stuff, just like try pushing your own stomach out because it can look like if you like, I just want to say this because sometimes people promote like dangerous things on the internet absolutely to help you lose weight. And like there are good ways to like, you know, achieve your goals and there are bad ways. And like taking like supplements that you like see just on Instagram from those like staged photos not a good way not the good way so do your research don't just look at the pictures because I can make myself like I weigh 170 pounds but I can make myself look like I weigh 200 and I can make myself look like I weigh 130 right you know what I'm saying so just everybody be careful and (laughs) and also I just want to say that because I feel like when you look at those before and after photos there's like some of them are real but a lot of them are not (laughs) And also it's just hard, like it's hard because like in, in terms of a self portrait, you're always going to see yourself differently than other people see you. Yes. And you are your own worst critic. Absolutely. And I think it's really interesting that everyone was telling her like, you're beautiful, you're ethereal, you're a nymph. And she's like, (laughs) I'm just a regular person. You know, like I'm not Ophelia drowning in the water. Right. Like I'm me. I'm, I'm Lizzie, you know? I'm not a a nymph. I'm not a sexy tree elf. Yeah, and it's okay to just be yourself. You know what I'm saying? Like, obviously, go out and achieve your goals. But, like, if that's what you think it's – if that's what you think yourself is, then, like, go for it. Right. But, but yeah, I don't know. I just – I love that she has a self-portrait. And go look it up. We'll also post it. Um, So, (laughs) sorry for that big rant. I love it. (laughs) She eventually captures the attention of an art critic named John Ruskin, and he is the top art critic in London at the time. And he sees her work. He goes, you've never been to art school. And she's like, no. He goes, you have incredible potential. And he becomes her patron. And he just pays her 150 pounds a year for her to paint. I love raw potential. It's so great when people can pinpoint it yeah like it just makes me so happy it's like simon cowell (laughs) (laughs) it's it's exactly what he does is it i'd never known what he actually did that's his i mean he's a producer he just like finds people and produces them very interesting he is raw he just finds raw talent that's his whole deal, which is I don't why know, he, dog. It, that's Randy Jackson. <laughs> but that's why he's so like harsh to people. Like mm. it's like he can see he can see raw talent. Mm-hmm. Although he did tell Kelly Clarkson she was too fat and fucking. No. Did he really? Yeah. When she was on, he was like, I just you're too big to have star quality. Like when she was on. um, um What was the show? American Idol. The first season. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. That's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. All right, so enough about Simon Cowell because now I'm very not on to Simon Cowell. I don't know. I'm he's he's bad on. Uh, he's very uh into how people look. Okay. So women, he will very much be like, "Sorry, you don't have the star look." Ah. Okay. Yeah. So, 
She is now being patroned by John Ruskin. And this really irked Dante Rossetti because he had been wanting Ruskin to sponsor him for quite some time. So now he's pissed. Yeah. That his girl. Yeah. Who didn't go to art school and like didn't have any classical training is now getting like some notoriety. He's very controlling and he's very jealous. Bro, did you even go to the Royal Academy? Did you even? And so this is like a very big deal. And she's also writing a ton of poetry at the time, which people are getting interested in. But then there are these these other guys who are like, "Mm, it's not that good. And they're kind of trying to like put her down. And some man, I, I can't, I don't even know who it was, but they patronizingly referred to her poetry as little tragic verses. Ugh. So. I mean, but you know what? If you're going to find your poetry with butter wrapped in it, like that's like it was meant to be. It's the predecessor (laughs) to the stick of gum. What's the stick of gum? Yeah, like they have like little things inside. When you open a stick of gum, they've got like little things on the inside. Mm -hmm. Or like Dove Chocolate does that. Wonderful. Laffy Taffy. Yeah. Get a joke with your Laffy Taffy. Lollipop sticks. (laughs) (laughs) But specifically the, what is it? The dum-dum kind? Yeah. You can get like a, like a star on it and you get. A prize. You need the star on the the, uh, dum-dum. How Um, many licks does it take to get to the center? Oh, my God. You can tell we've recorded a lot We're off the rails. Um, We're just talking now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so sorry. Um, So she's doing art. She's writing poetry. And then she develops this unofficial sisterhood of pre-Raphaelite models. And this is really interesting because so this was – the group of models that were posing for the pre-Raphaelites, they started to talk between them, them. and they, so it was Lizzie, Fanny Cornforth, and Annie Miller, and they would just kind of hang out, and they'd paint, and they'd write together, and sort of like have each other's back of this troops of, of this like troop of girls that like were linked to these famous men, and it was pretty cool. But then there was also some like sleeping around that was going on, and some affairs because again, all these people are trying to lead like this bohemian lifestyle. So there is a lot of drama that comes around later, but we'll get to it. So over the years, Lizzie has also been in and out of poor health. And it's not just related to the pneumonia. A lot of people think she had tuberculosis, which was very common back then. But most historians believe that what she actually had, which a lot of models suffer from, was anorexia. Oh, my God. Really? Yes. That's an early case of that. A very early case. And over the years, Lizzie had just, again, been very sick on and off. And we are kind of piecing this together because when Dante would write letters to his friends, he would talk about how worried he was because he's like, Lizzie, even when she's like, you know, in good spirits, isn't eating. And she's so thin and she's so frail and she never has an appetite. And I just he's like like he's distraught about how little she eats. And I think that and because she got known for this again, like thin, willowy figure. And I feel like she was like, well, I have to keep that up. And also but anorexia is one of those things that I don't know enough about to really speak on. but. I would love it's, to see her self-portrait now because I've yeah. never seen it. Yeah. Because if she saw herself as bigger, do you know what I mean? Like yeah. that's such a mindset of like, I'm not thin enough. Yeah, exactly. And when like, 
and there's one like photograph of her and like I was kind of looking at like her wrist because her wrist looked like very very thin but she's in this like big Victorian dress you mm. know and again we don't know for sure whether she was or not but it's something that could have been true and it sounds like it was true and I think that maybe some people suffering from anorexia might be like I connect with that like <laughs> yeah they're like that was happening in the 1800s. Like, what the fuck? Well, you know? I th- like, all the illnesses we have names for now existed before. Exactly. We just didn't have words for them. We didn't have research. We didn't have like places to write them down. And we didn't have ways to connect women like Lizzie. Yeah. Women who are like, yeah, I don't know what it is, but like, I just don't have an appetite ever. And so I just think that's a really important thing to bring up because anorexia is so prevalent and like some places are really trying to do something about it especially in the fashion world right you know france is very trying very hard yeah we just posted something about that a couple weeks ago so um so yeah so i just want to bring that up because i it it's not a new thing i think people think that anorexia came up because of fashion magazines pressures in the in the in the industry in the industry and She's literally just being painted by portrait artists, but it doesn't matter because, you know, no one even knows her name at this point. So it's not like she's the famous model Lizzie Siddle. She is just a normal woman who has this disorder. Yeah. You know, and so I just want to put it out there that it's not I feel like we like to blame things like the fashion industry, but this has also existed because unnecessary pressures are put on women sometimes it's just something else but you know i just i thought it's also something we haven't covered a lot we haven't i don't know if we we gotta do some janice joplin we need to i mean i don't know if we've ever talked about judy garland struggled we've talked about it a little bit yeah but um but yeah and i just um i thought it was a really i don't know if we've ever covered someone with anorexia yeah and to bring it to light with someone from the 1800s i think is very important so so yeah so that's what a lot of people thought that um she was suffering from um but her the her patron ruskin is like girl you need to get some help and so he's like you need to get away from dante you need to go out to the country in Paris and like you need, just need to relax and you need to like get your shit back in order. So she goes, she spends some time abroad, but the doctors in an effort to treat her are like, mm, you know what? You should go on laudanum. Oh, no. Which we know from our Mary Shelley episode is opium. Yeah. So she goes, she starts taking laudanum. And she's like, wow, I feel really fucking good on this because it's opium. And meanwhile, Dante is back home having an affair with her good friend, Fanny. But the controlling Dante who won't even let her post for anybody else. Yes. But Lizzie spends her whole time over in France thinking that he's sleeping with Annie. So he's with Fanny, but not Annie. Yeah. And then she is just spinning out on laudanum. And she's starting to get very, very paranoid. So by the time she gets back, she is in a fit and she rummages through the whole house and destroys all of his artwork of Annie, (gasps) who is not even the person he's having the affair with. Oh, my God. It sucks. So she's going through a really dark time right now. And Dante just keeps sleeping around with his models. But... 
by May of 1860 after they had been together and turbulent for like 10 years. They get married. No. <laughs> Which is not the turn that you think the story is going to take. Didn't expect it. I they expected her to leave. married. Oh my God. Really? So, and the reason they had not done so for so long is because Dante came from a very wealthy family who were like, she's fucking trash. You cannot marry a model. That's not something that you do. And it's like, they're very disappointed. And I also like, I just want to say marriage is not the solution for a shit relationship. I feel like I have like seen a lot of people who were like, we keep fighting. So like maybe we should just get married and that'll fix our problems. I'm like, no, it won't. Like, you're just gonna also like if you them. are, if you've become accustomed to infidelity and you're not it's okay not with it, change with things marriage. don't change. If you're okay with it, then fine. Right. But exactly. if you're not, then that's not an okay answer. Damn. But so she, is finally getting married to Dante, but she is so frail and sick that she had to be carried to the church. She couldn't walk there on her own. She needs... Get this girl some bread. I know. Not laudanum, but, like, maybe some bread. Maybe some pasta. Um, take her to Italy, not France. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, France has bread. They do have bread. They have really good bread. <laughs> Ever heard of it? Um, so. It's a baguette. <laughs> so... And as happy as she was to, like, finally marry Dante, I feel like there's probably some, you know, like, is this right? I don't know. But either way, she's like, yeah, I'm super stoked. And within a year, Lizzie is pregnant with their first child. How does your frame handle that? It can't. Oh, my God. And she delivers the baby stillborn, which devastates her. Yeah, I'm sure. And she falls into a very deep depression she conceives again. That baby is also lost soon into the pregnancy and her depression and her laudanum addiction just worsen. Is any of this syphilis or is it just her frame? I think this is just her frame. Oh it my seems God. like oh. um, maybe it touches syphilis, but we don't know for sure. Well, sprinkles. We know it was rampant. <laughs> <laughs> so on February 10th, 1862, Dante comes home. He finds Lizzie in this terrible state, but he's like, I have a dinner party to go to. I can't deal with you. So he leaves. And he goes to the dinner party. He comes back to find her unconscious after overdosing on laudanum. Oh, no. He called three different doctors who did everything they could, including pumping her stomach. But... After many, many hours, she passed away early the next morning on February 11th, 1862, at the age of 33. Some say it was suicide. Some say it was accidental. But we really don't know. Um, There's also like a story. Maybe it's a rumor. Maybe it's true that Lizzie had penned a suicide note. But Dante's friends had encouraged him to destroy it. Because it complicated the death and she would not have been allowed a proper funeral if it were a suicide. And there's just a lot of more explaining you have to do. And he just didn't want to he didn't want to deal with it. There's so much death politics around um, killing yourself that is just so unfortunate. Mm -hmm. It's so unfortunate. So. But her story does not end there. Dante. Tom Sawyer. 
who's not Tom Soaring, unfortunately. Um, Dante's riddled with grief and remorse because he's like, fuck, I saw her and I didn't do anything. And I help her. I left. I left. And so when he, so when she's being buried, he places a book of his poems next to her cheek tangled in her beautiful red hair and she's buried his grief sends him into this dark depressive spiral and he spends the next few years just crashing deeper and deeper he gains a ton of weight he stops working and he just really gets out of control and then he gets into the next most victorian thing next to laudanum the occult he becomes more and more convinced over time that Lizzie is haunting him. Probably because he was a shit husband and he feels really guilty and he left her to die. Well, and also that's what suicide leaves with people, leaves behind with people. Yes. That is something that happens. It is like, and I'm like, I don't want to like make light of it because there are so many people who have experienced that and it's really terrible, but he was also like not good to her the whole time. Right. And left and he, when she was in the w- middle of distress. Exactly. You know, cause like when he came home, that was her warning call of like, I'm not okay. And then he left. Right. You can't do that. And sometimes you don't see the warning call. Sometimes it's a repetitive one that you think, okay, but it's not serious this time. And if you didn't see the warning call, I don't want you to feel bad because right. Sometimes you really don't know. And maybe Lizzie had done this before and she didn't know, you know, and he didn't realize that it was serious this time. Also, just for to clear ourselves, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. Yes. So if you see somebody in trauma or you yourself are in trauma, that's yeah who you call. Yes. There's always someone available to talk. Always. So... He feels very haunted by this and he becomes just like really convinced that she is haunting him. And one of the things was like he so Lizzie had a pet um, bullfinch, which is like a bird. And he's like, the finch is talking to me in Lizzie's voice. And he starts to become like delirious and. He's like, I know that the finches are coming to me. The finches are coming. They're talking to me. It's Lizzie. She's talking to me from beyond the grave. That's very Edgar Allan Poe. Yes. Mm. And so he tries repeatedly to contact Lizzie from beyond the grave with her old friend, Fanny, who Who he was cheating on her Mm -hmm. her with. So she was the medium. Again, maybe a little inappropriate since they were former lovers. And if I were Lizzie in the afterlife, I would be like, well, look who it is. The happy couple. <laughs> I would absolutely haunt them. Because I'm petty. Um, <laughs> so throughout all of these occult seances, they're like trying to reach her. And he keeps getting these thoughts in his head. He's like, shit, I put all of my poems in the coffin and I haven't been able to write ever since. There must be a connection. This must be part of the haunting. So they do not exhume her body before they do that, because that is coming. Oh, my God. Mind you, he is addicted to something called like chloral, and he does overdose at some point, but he recovers. And this brings us to his recovery trip to Scotland. 
he and a friend are walking on the grounds of the castle and a bullfinch stops in front of them. And oh, then he's like, yeah. it's Lizzie. She followed me to Scotland. She's here. And then they discover that the bells at the castle chimed at exactly the same time that they found the bird. And these are like heavy ass bells that like can't just be blown by the wind. You have to pull the string. And everyone was like, I didn't pull the string. So he's like, I'm losing it. I have to get those poems back. Yeah, that's the only solution. That's how I fixed the haunting. This so, guy's insane. Yeah. So he contacts the people. He gets permission to exhume her body. He hires people to grow, go to the graveyard in the middle of the night to dig her up to get his book back. Why does it have to be the middle of the night if you got permission? Because he knows it's crazy. There's like something <laughs> in him that's like, people aren't going to like this. <laughs> I'm going to dig so, up my ex-wife to take a book back that I gave to her for the afterlife. Exactly. And also I'd like to like point to the fact that he wasn't there. So they get the coffin up. And the story that Dante liked to tell because it made him seem like less of a creep was that she looked exactly the way she did the day she died. And her red hair kept growing. So it was Lizzie's pure white face among a tangle of red locks that filled the coffin. What a psycho. But in reality, she had been dead for seven years. I mean, she had been completely uh, decomposited or whatever. Her body was decayed and the coffin was filled with dead body fluid. And maggots, right? And maggots. They didn't have the ceiling of cement they have today. Yeah. So they get the book and the... Grave diggers are like, oh, this is disgusting. They send it out for cleaning. <laughs> and but the whole literary world knows that he's doing this because it's public. He had to get permission. Wouldn't so the pages they, have been eaten by the maggots if they're covered in body fluid? They were. Oh, God. So the literary world is on pins and needles. So like, I cannot wait to hear from this poetry from the grave. But again, when he gets it back, most of the book is obviously ruined by the fluid and there were giant maggot holes in it. But he was able to publish some of it and he made a good bit of money off of it and off of the legend of the preserved corpse bride, which she wasn't preserved. She was definitely disgusting and dead. (laughs) Gross. He did regret his decision. (laughs) Good. But it wasn't until after he died that the truth came out about the gore and the guts involved in this caper, which makes me angry that like people thought for years like, wow, I can't believe that like Lizzie Siddle was like perfectly preserved like seven years after she died. Like Snow White in the glass glass coffin. And it's like she again, she wasn't in a coma. She was dead and in the ground. So that's. That's the story. That's the story. <laughs> and I just want to say, like, she lives on in this crazy story and her works of art and in a show called Desperate Romantics. But I just I want to get this whole episode as a shout out because I just want to shout her out for being in a, like surrounded by some shitty people. And. She did so much, but we will always remember her as the tragic Ophelia. And that's it. That's Lizzie Siddle. That's a crazy story. I love it. <laughs> it's, I love it's it. It's like starts off so normal. And it's like, okay, like she was a model. She also did art herself, which is really cool. It, and then it gets just and bonkers. It's like grave robbing. <laughs> I love it. Exhume the bodies. Exhume them all. 
I also up. love that you were like, does he exhume the body? <laughs> I knew yeah. it was going to happen. He's a psycho. <laughs> Perfect. Are um, you ready for more drinks? I'm ready for more drinks. Let's so go I'm make ready. them. Let's do it. We're back after that roller coaster of a first that, half. I mean... Were you surprised or were you surprised? I was surprised. <laughs> the first one. <laughs> I was astonished. First and both of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was a crazy story. It um, really was. So thank you again, Charles, for um, bringing that to our attention. I love a request episode because <sighs> it's fun when we don't come up with the people. Exactly. So, Allie, who recommended this person to you? So Emily Hill <laughs> Emily Hill recommended this and um, Zenadia Portnova is a story I didn't really expect not a lot of sources on her okay did my best it's gonna be a little short but her life was short so like all the sto- fits. yeah all the sources say the same thing yeah uh, you know there's a few podcasts there's a few YouTube videos there's a few articles online but they all say the same damn thing well and you know what I have never heard of her, so I'm glad that we're just like adding to the ether because the fact is that if only one podcast ever covered her, maybe her story wouldn't be told. Right. But if we're adding to that number and then 20 podcasts talk about her, maybe people will know who she is. I found one podcast that does a similar thing that we do. Mm -hmm. They do like two women, but Mm -hmm. her story was so short. They did three women that week. (laughs) (laughs) So, well, we rant so much that we don't have to do that. Exactly. We just talk about ourselves. It'll be an hour and a half long episode. (laughs) It will be. It will be. So tell me, what do you know about Zenadia Portnova? I think that she was Russian. Okay. From the Soviet Union. Mm Mm-hmm. I know she had pigtails and she died young. But yeah. that was from what you said earlier. So that's all I know. Oh, hell yeah. Do you <laughs> want to know what you're drinking? I do. It looks red, like Russian red. Okay. This is a, I am so sorry, Belarus. This is a bastardized version of your famous cocktail. Hold on. Is she Belarusian? Yeah. <gasps> She's from Belarus. Oh, my God. I'm going to tell you a story about that, but after we get to drinking. Okay. So there's a really, there's a famous cocktail in Belarus called the Crambambula. Mm. And there, it's not like one specific recipe. There's lots of recipes. But from what I could tell, you mix wine and liquor and tea. Okay. Which is what I did. There's um like an ounce of vodka, an ounce of red wine, an ounce of black tea. A lot of times there's cinnamon. A lot of times there's lemon or lime. So it's a very interesting drink. Okay. And I just did vodka, red wine, black tea, and lemon. Okay. Um, well, I'm excited. Yeah. Sometimes it's Cheers. warm like Vassal. But I did it cold. Kind of tart. Yeah. With the lemon in it. Kind of tart. Very interesting. I bet they would make it better in Belarus. They probably would. (laughs) I I do like it. I can't even taste the vodka. No, not at all. But um, yeah, it's a very interesting drink. Yes. Um, And again, I'm very sorry if you are from... 
Belarus or Eastern Europe, and this is a drink that you are used to. Um, but I'm naming it the Young Avenger. The Young Avenger. Okay. So, so I do want to tell a quick story. Tell me about Belarus. So the only reason I even know Belarus exists <laughs> is because the boy that I had a crush on all throughout elementary school, John Gellis, was from specifically Belarus, yes. and he would make that known. Because my school, for some I don't even know why this happened, but we had a very strong, like, Belarusian, Ukrainian population in our school. We did. I, <laughs> I don't know why, um, but they're a very tight-knit community. And I remember, uh, and, and Russian, too, because there was... A <laughs> you had a Russian student live at your house We did. Years. So uh, there was a student in our school. Shout out to Michael. Shout out to Michael Valkrushev. Um, when he was in high school, his mom went back to Russia to visit family. But since he was, I believe it was like 18, he couldn't go back because they had every right to enlist him into the Russian army, I think is what the situation was. So my mom was like, yeah, just come and live with us for a whole summer. <laughs> yeah. So then this kid, Michael, just came and lived with us for a whole summer so he wouldn't get into the Russian yeah. military. Which is intense um, because he is mine and producer's age. Yes, he is. So we would like, come and hang out. He was in our class. Yeah. And he, I, I don't remember a whole lot about that summer, but I know that he like loved hot dogs. And I know that then after he left our house, he was like, I'm in the Russian mob now. I'm like, so what do we all do that for, Michael? Um, but what shout, a bananas cost Michael <laughs> ten rubles. Um, but shout out to John Gellis. You were absolutely so fine in third grade. So uh, I had Larissa in my you class. Did the older sister Larissa yes. Gellis? Gosh, and Victor and Victor was um in between. I feel like, but he skipped a grade and came into mine in base <gasps> class. They were That's all in right. our class. <sighs> beautiful people (laughs) we have just absolutely shouted out all of their first and last names here's their address if you want to call them uh, here's their cousin she got married last year find them on social media Um, no you can't trust me i've tried to find john gellis on social media and i cannot so if anyone and victor's there though he wears sunglasses (laughs) and he likes cars (laughs) i just remember i was like i'm gonna find john gellis but i know also another thing about him that i thought was very like intriguing when i was a kid he was like i don't have a middle name and i was like that's crazy (laughs) you don't have a middle name so on all the documents he was just john gellis uh so this has been our gellis corner personal corner love it shit you don't need to know (laughs) are you ready i am ready i'm ready to hear the story because i'm tired of i'm i'm sick of myself talking about stuff that Uh, doesn't matter i'll never be sick of you talking about (laughs) stuff that doesn't matter but zanadia portnova does matter okay she does okay so she was born February 20th, 1926 in Leningrad, which is the second largest city in Russia next to Moscow. Mm-hmm. Her parents are from Belarus. She's the oldest daughter of a working class family living in the city. Her dad works at a local industrial plant. Her little sister is like eight years younger than her, and her name is Galia. Now I got to jump. Boop. Into Emily's favorite thing, which is World War II. Wow, okay. That's all she suggests. Uh, <laughs> Emily, you're down for she World War II. loves it. We hear it. 
<laughs> have you heard of the other wars? <laughs> no, but everybody loves World War Two. That's true. It's very interesting. It's very interesting. We also do a lot of episodes about it. I know. We, I mean, because I mean, everybody alive today has some sort of something. No, it's so true. And I also feel like because our grandparents were in it. Yeah. We're like, yes, World War Two. Um, uh, greatest generation exactly of the worst people like, I'm just <laughs> kidding I was just talking about the Nazis okay so uh, 1939 Germany invades Poland and they did this with the help of the USSR they were initially helping out Germany at this time Germany kind of contacted them and were like hey bro we're gonna go into Poland and uh, we're not coming for you uh, cool and Russia's like all right cool uh, so in 1939, they have this pact that they're going to split Eastern Europe between the two of them. But by 1940, Germany, with their plan to like purge Eastern Europe of its native people, uh, the pact isn't going to work out. Okay. Because Germany's goal is if they get rid of the native people of Eastern Europe, then they can settle their pure people there to repopulate the earth with a good race. So okay. like... The USSR was originally like, oh, we're going to like share the land. And then they're realizing like, oh, fuck, Germany does not intend to share this land. Okay. So they like very quickly switch sides. So okay. if you want to hear more about the war, I released like a mini episode on our Patreon of just me talking about World War Two. It's nonsense, but it's worth it. <laughs> um, OK, so the Nazis then very quickly invade the USSR when they um, realize that the pact is no longer a thing. And okay. Germans are starting to occupy all of the countries that are like bordering Russia, which are technically kind of a part of Russia at the time. Like okay. Latvia, Estonia, Belarus, Ukraine, like all that stuff right there is a part of the USSR. Okay. The amidst. <laughs> yes. This includes Zenadia, who is living on the border of the German land. And her parents were like, whoa, 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 whoa. You're in seventh grade. You're 14. Your little sister's six. We love you. Let's get you and your sister out of here. Go live with your grandma in the country in Obel, which is in northern Belarus. Okay. Which is like the whole backstory of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Like, this is dangerous. Oh Go live at this uncle's here. house. Like, you can't be in London. So this is a very popular thing happening in Europe during World War II. Like, go live with somebody else. I, it must have been, it must have been such a hard decision because now if we're like, go live with someone else, I'll FaceTime you, we'll Zoom, we can email. Then it's like, cool. Hope to see you on the other side. Right. I might and, die. You might die. Done. And we have covered so many of these stories that like sometimes it was the right decision. Sometimes it was the wrong decision. And you had no idea what kind of choice you were making. No. You were trying to do your best. And like in some cases it did like so like um, Anne Franks yeah. Anne and, Fr and Margot Frank like their dad kept them because yeah. he was like it'll be safer if you're with me. But that was the total wrong decision. Right. Like they died because they stayed with him. Yeah. It's exactly. just so heart wrenching. Heart wrenching. Yeah. And then some people sent their kids to places and they're like go there you'll be safe. And then it's like oh that place got bombed. Right. And it's like fuck. Yeah. Like. <sighs> yeah. So I feel like. um. This story is like a mixture of like the night witches mm. and like some other like really crazy like World War II pioneer okay. type women. It's like okay. a really cool story. Um, so go live with your grandma. 
<laughs> this is the beginning of the Nazi invasion of Belarus, which was called Operation Barbarossa. Um, so beginning in June, the Nazis advance 200 miles in like weeks, like across Belarus. They're just conquering everything. And uh, 2.5 million Soviet soldiers were dead or missing within a month. It's crazy. They're just dominating. Um, and the family had thought that Zanadia would be safe there, but it was a farm and farms had raw materials. And what the Germans were doing were taking the food and the cattle from farms so they didn't have to ship supplies from Germany. So they're literally purposely looking for farms to take their shit. Okay. So the the Nazis go to her grandma's farm and start to take her cattle. And back then, if you took someone's cattle, then they're going to starve to death. Like you have, you're taking every single thing. Okay. Uh, so grandma puts up a fight because she's a real badass and she's like <laughs> fighting against the Nazis awesome you know feminist hero there Love it. uh and a soldier hits her grandmother in the face like in front of her like <gasps> beats her up and she's 16 at this point and is done with this and this spurs her deep hatred for the nazis so they they physically assaulted her grandmother battered her grandmother in front of her and now she's just like fuck the nazis oh my god so with no stable home life, she decides she's going to join the all-union Leninist Young Communist League. Okay. Better known as the Young Avengers. <gasps> I love it. I hope they have uniforms or some I shit. I hope so. Or it's a great. badge. Yeah. It's a local underground resistance group. She was 16 and quickly becoming a very useful part of the resistance. So remember... At this time, men are allowed in the army, even in the U.S. Army. Like, women are allowed in, but they're not allowed in active combat until Desert Storm. Okay. So, like, you can do stuff, but you can't do stuff, you know? So these underground rebellions are where a lot of young people went and where a lot of women went to, like, mm -hmm. fight back against the Nazis. So there's a lot of resistance groups in Europe because of this, and they did not discriminate based on age or gender. Um, there's this picture that you can find online of Zanadia and this other child, like putting guns together and it is chilling. They are babies and oh they're like putting God. together these weapons to help fight the Nazis. It's also her job. This is very Sophie Scholl. Oh, that's it. That's the perfect comparison. It is a mixture of Sophie Scholl and the night witches. That's what okay. this story is. That's exactly what it is. Okay. So... Uh, it's also her job to pass out propaganda leaflets to the all the people in all the towns so that they know there's a resistance. Okay. They just want people to feel comfortable. So she's going from town to town, handing out these leaflets about the resistance and then also collecting random weapons that have been lost, like that the Germans either died or whatever. She collects them and stockpiles them for the Russian forces. So she's not only handing out papers, she's also collecting weapons. Okay. So she is becoming a very dangerous uh, person. And then she got the assignment to start spying on German soldiers to gather intel on their movement. So now she's like telling head people like here's where they're going next. As she got better and better at this, she was given weapons and explosive training. And now she joins in to domestic 
terrorism sabotage operations. So uh, she starts blowing up buildings like within her own country and they blow up buildings where the Nazis have congregated nearby to try to kill as many Nazis as possible. So they build a, they blow up a power plant brick factories, a water pump factory that's supplying water. And because it's children running around blowing up these plants, no one's su- suspecting them of doing this. Oh, my God. I mean, can you imagine being a teenager, like, planting bombs in, like, buildings near where Nazis are? No. It's, I mean, it's so intense. And her group, the Young Avengers, are credited with killing hundreds of Nazi soldiers. During this small time period. Oh my God. Babies. Yeah. Little tiny babies. Mm. I just can't even imagine. When I was a teenager. I was. And it had a bra on my head. In a little Caesars parking lot. Yeah. I was a fucking idiot. Yeah. Mm. And they're like. Literally. She's well, literally fighting for her whole country. God. And I think about that all the time. Like. The time. And the space. That like. We grew up in. Is like such a privilege to like be a teenage idiot and like for some people that's not an option it isn't and also I think it's really important to say and I don't know how this is going to come off but she's blowing up countries in her own building in her own country blowing up buildings in her own country she's blowing up buildings (gasps) in her own country to save the country yeah so violence sometimes gets a peaceful result well, and I and I think that is such an important because of thing the riots. to say now. Right. Exactly. Because a lot of people are like, oh, like they're so quick to demean the protesters and be like, oh, well, they shouldn't be doing that. Da, 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 da. And it's like, how do you think meaningful change happens? Because yeah. unfortunately, the way you want it to happen through conversation and talking and, and kneeling like, at football kneeling games, at football games <laughs> that they you don't, don't want. want that. Right. So. When people are pushed to a point where they have nowhere else to go, right. that is the route that they must take to get your attention because according to you, property and items to sell matter more than human lives. Right. And it's so hard because it's like, I would never want to say, hey, blow up this personal business that this person spent their whole life setting up. Right. Like, that's not what I want either. But also, it's like, we're so quick to look at things right now as awful. And we don't compare it to history where like people blew up shit in their own countries all the time to prove a point. So we get to her most famous stunt in 1943. There's a German garrison that's located in an area uh, nearby. She poses and gets hired as a cooking assistant in the German garrison. She successfully infiltrates the Nazis mm. as a teenage girl. Oh, my God. She starts adding some special extra ingredients to their food, and it is poison. Oh, my God. Belle Bib DeVoe. Love it. She is poisoning the Nazis. She's Belbib devoting them all over the place. Poison. That's fantastic. It's crazy. So, obviously, they suspect her because she's a non-German person (sighs) working in the kitchen. Oh, my gosh. So, of course. It's getting serious. (laughs) Poison. (laughs) I I can't. So, they come up. They come in and they're like, what's up with you, girl? You're like a Soviet working in a Nazi kitchen. And she's like, nothing. Nothing's wrong with me. I don't know what you mean. And just like 
takes a spoonful of the stew and like eats it in front of them. Sally. Sally. <laughs> <laughs> How good is my impression of it's very, very good. It's it's my favorite thing. Uh, there weren't holes in the bottom of the spoons. Okay, so she, she actually she drank, drank it. poison. Uh, and she runs home to her grandma's house and gets violently ill. Oh, she's my vomiting. God. She's making herself throw up. Take one for the team. She really did. And her grandma's like, here, drink all of this whey. Like Little Miss Muffet sat on her top eating her curds oh. and whey. So her grandmother's making her eat all this whey to soak up the poison and vomit and whatever. But when she doesn't come back to work the next day, the Germans are like, oh, yeah, she's definitely she's a poison girl. Poisoned. Yeah, poisoned. Yeah. <laughs> I can't. Um, so she's a fugitive now. <laughs> okay. Yeah. She's definitely a fugitive. She is a criminal. <laughs> Perfect. Poison. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. It needed to happen. It did. I'm going to keep doing it for the rest of the show, mind you. Every time we bring up poison from now on. <laughs> poison. Uh, to avoid detection, she joins a partisan detachment, which is a Belarusian resistance group. Uh, and she had a great impact there, too, where she would fight back against the Nazi patrol squads that were, like, sent out to round up the Soviet resistance fighters. So she's working on all these, like, scout missions. In a letter sent to her parents, she said that she was in a partisan unit beating the Nazis. And she said, Mom, we are now in partisan detachment. Together with you, we will defeat the Nazi invaders. In 1944, though, she is sent back into the garrison. The resistance groups are like, listen, we need you. The Young Avengers missions have been really unsuccessful around here, and we think there's a rat. So we want you to go in and, like, find the rat. Find the rat. Uh, but this is only, like, a couple months after she poisoned everybody. So she comes back in, and they're immediately like, that's Poison Girl. Like, <laughs> why would you send her back? You're like, you idiot. That's DeVoe. Yeah. We have to get her out of here. That's poison. <laughs> it's all it is. So <laughs> two stories on how she escapes and then is recaptured. So I don't know which one is real, but there's two stories of what happens once they take her. First, they take her into a room. She's 17 years old. They interrogate her. An officer just inadvertently puts his pistol on the interrogation table. She takes it, shoots the Gestapo interrogator. Then others run into the room when they hear the gunshot. She shoots them too and then escapes through a window. She runs out into the woods next to a river where she's then recaptured. That's story one. Totally possible. That's the one I heard the most. Second story is that an interrogator was upset and kind of threw the pistol down and Zaneda picks it up, shoots him, opens the door, runs out, and kills two guards. One in the hallway, one in the courtyard. And then when she gets to the road at the entrance, she tries to kill the guard at the entrance. But she was either out of ammo or her gun malfunctioned. And that Nazi took her alive. Okay. So either way, she killed some Nazis on the way out and then got recaptured. There's also then two accounts of her death. Account one, well, in both, she was tortured for information. They take her. They try to figure out about the underground groups. She's tortured for information. She's 17 years old. Um, and then in the first story, they take her into the woods to be executed by firing squad. In the second account, 
the torture is so bad that she dies during the torture process. Oh, my God. Either way, Zenadia Portnova died on January 15th, 1944, one month before her 18th birthday. Jesus. On July 1st, 1958, she was declared a hero of the Soviet Union, which is the highest award you can get. That's like the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Yeah. She's the youngest female ever to be awarded with the USSR's highest honor and also received an Order of Lenin, which is like being knighted. It's the highest military award that can be given to a civilian. Her legacy moved to encourage other young groups in that country and other countries to keep fighting the Nazis. And there are a lot of groups today still named after her, including school sports teams, museums. There's obelisk monuments of her with like a bust on top in both Minsk and in Obol. And that is the story of Zenadia Portnova. Like short to the point, like... That was her life. So quick. So quick. Well, and that's the hard thing when we do very young people who die for their causes is it's like they were out there and, and there's, they did their shit. She did it. And there's nothing and else. Died. And like sometimes I feel guilty about that. But it's like I shouldn't feel guilty about the fact that she fucking lived it up in 17 years. Yeah, she did. She was 17 and she did everything she could to fight this horrendous, horribly bigoted group of people. Yeah, for sure. I they mean, wanted to take over the world. Yeah. And like make it all fucking one race. And yeah. she fought back she and did. killed hundreds of people with poison and hundreds of people with bombs and then shot a couple dudes on the way out. Love it. Guns blazing. Violence is the answer. So like, <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's not. But she did a good job with it. All right. We should talk about these two women in a little segment that we like to call Just the Two of Us. Um, these may be the most different women we've ever done. Maybe, but they were both untrained in their art. That is a good point. I yes. like the idea that it's like you've got this little girl and you've got this girl who's an untrained artist and they're both just like trying to make it. From working class families, they're like, nobody's giving us shit. Right. We are just trying to make the best of our situations right now. Yeah. And it's just very interesting to me how zanadia is like so unquestionably like a hero <laughs> you know because the stakes were so much greater for her and and the nazis are universally hated they really are <laughs> whereas like the stuffy art world i feel like is kind of universally hated but right. like nobody says it yeah because you secretly think they're better than you yeah but everyone feels better than the nazis yeah which is nice it is nice um, <laughs> I, I mean, it's also like they both joined a brotherhood. They did. Yeah. yeah. They were like, let me get in on this. The Young Avengers and the like pre-Raphaelites or whatever they were called. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think that two different things were focused on in each of their stories. So with Zenadia, she had to be like physically well enough to like fight and go after them and she's like I cannot take time to think about how I feel about all of this because what I feel is that like I need to fight back and I need to do it now whereas <laughs> with Lizzie so much of her story focuses on her mental health and there were just a lot of things going on in her life that she couldn't 
control, but it's these more nuanced things that like people aren't as like, well, too bad for you about. It's you so, know? that's so interesting because I think physical and mental health paint such a good picture of them because yes. I think Zanadia went into it and was like, I know physically I'm going to die. Yeah. I think she knew yeah. at a very young age that yeah. she was sacrificing her life for this movement. Um, and I think that Lizzie felt very differently. She was like trying to live within the movement and her mental health killed her. Absolutely. And I just, I've, I was thinking about it a lot in terms of like Zanadia living in life or death circumstances. And then you have Lizzie who was forced into a kind of life after death circumstance. And a lot of the juiciest parts of her story come from after she died because how she was being interpreted by the man in her life was that she's haunting me. And I hope to God that Zanadia haunted some of those fucking Nazis because I know that the Nazis had some weird occult stuff going on. Absolutely. So I hope that she haunted them as well. I also haunted I, their dreams. <laughs> I think that the haunting idea is cool in terms of food and illness. Mm. So like Lizzie herself had like this aversion to food, which made her ill. Yeah. And Zanadio was purposely feeding the Nazis food to make them ill. Oh my God. Food politics. Yeah. Food politics are so interesting. They are. Because it's a very touchy thing. It's a very taste-oriented thing, person-to-person, culture-to-culture. You can be as broad as you want with food politics or as minusculely specific. And I love these two interpretations of, like, food is death. Yeah. Because everyone thinks, like, well, food is life. And for someone with anorexia, I don't know the exact emotional turmoil that comes along with that, but... From what I understand, it's like this, like, I can't eat Mm. because like, you know what I'm saying? And it's like with her, she's like, I'm going to feed you and you're going to die. And this whole thing of like life is tied up with food, but in the exact opposite way. Right. I I felt like Zanadia was such an Arya Stark, like at the Red Wedding. Yes. Like, I'm going to serve you this food and it is going to cause trauma and I'm doing it on purpose yeah and then it's just lizzie is such the opposite of like she is dealing with so much like mentally that she can't even like ingest food because she's having such a struggle with what it's going to do to her physically yeah which would be make her healthy yeah exactly and then it's kind of tied up in that thing of like well i'm popular because i'm like do they want me healthy Is it going to affect my career if I am? You know what I'm saying? Like, Mm. it's all tied up in these really unfortunate politics of what we find useful and beautiful. And Zanadia was in the situation where she was like, I can't even think about that right now. Like, yeah. And and it doesn't make either their stories less valid. It doesn't. And also, I, I just thought it was interesting how Europe is so two different places. Yeah, Eastern Europe and Western Europe, even though they're in different time periods, like everybody would be like, oh, my God, I went to Europe. And yeah. it's like, right, but where in Europe? Exactly. Because the cultures are so vastly different. Like yeah. you cannot compare somebody living in London and France to somebody in Belarus. Their struggle and their story is so different. Absolutely. Mm. I don't know. I was like... And I'm thinking, too, about, like, how, like, 
a lot of people haven't even heard of Belarus. Yeah, the country. Yeah, the country, the whole country with its own culture and its own people. And I wonder what kind of art we lost from them that we don't even know about that was maybe even lumped in with like, we'll just put that in the Ukrainian section. We'll put that in the Russian section. And like all these little cultures are like, hey, we were here. Yeah. Or like even that the Nazis burnt or destroyed or that they destroyed themselves trying to fight the Nazis. Yeah, exactly. Because sometimes you have to burn some shit to get your fucking point across. (laughs) You really do. Ready to toast these women? I'm ready to toast. Let's do it. Allie, who would you like to toast this evening? So I just want to say we've seen a lot of negativity this week about peaceful protests and riots. And I just think that there's a big jigsaw puzzle, you know, has so much happening and it's hard to condemn someone using violence for their freedom. Zenadia was bombing buildings within her own country, within her own home. So my toast is not to condone violence, but it is to every little piece of the puzzle that makes progress happen. Mm. So cheers. Cheers. I would like to toast the lost models. It seems so tragic to me that we have millions of portraits of women and only a few stories of their lives. So cheers to them and the stories we will never hear. Cheers. Cheers. All right, Allie, what is your promo for this week? My promo is so stupid this week. What is it? So have you ever seen Wreck-It Ralph? No. Okay. So Wreck-It Ralph 1 is good. Uh Uh-huh. Wreck-It Ralph 2, Ralph Breaks the Internet, is fantastic. I've heard very good things. It is literally all jokes for (laughs) grown-ups. There is not one joke. It's just colorful. That's the only thing that's good for kids is that it's colorful. Sarah Silverman plays a little girl, right? Yeah, Penelope. Yeah. Sarah Silverman plays her in both. And um, it's just... It's literally Ralph Breaks the Internet. It's just jokes about the Internet. It's about emojis. It's about Twitter. It's about all the things you can find online. It is so funny. So if you are struggling in this time of like sadness and all these bad things going on in the world and you just need to like sit back and like zone out to a stupid kid show, this one is worth it. It also has every Disney princess in it and they're wearing like normal ass clothes and just like sitting on couches brushing each other's hair and like talking about the world and it's it's just so cute and it's worth it I love it so I just wanted to give everybody a break from serious things this week and just like go watch a kid's show yeah and like if you don't have kids I know a lot of times it's like oh I haven't seen Frozen 2 yet oh I haven't seen this I haven't seen that and it's like they're really good movies but like there's no point in going out of your way to see it this one's worth I watched Tangled by myself the other week because Yo, I was like, so I haven't good. seen it and I feel like I need to. It's really good. It's good. Anyway, go watch <sighs> Breckett Ralph. Yes. Ralph breaks the internet. What's your promo? So I am going to go on the more serious note and I am going to promote uh, listening. So it's really easy to turn things off when it starts to get serious and talk about things that make you uncomfortable. But it's important to listen to people, especially people of color, who are telling you how they feel and how they're hurt and what the situation is. And I really want to highlight a quote from our Audre Lorde episode. She said, I cannot hide my anger to spare you guilt, nor hurt feelings, nor answering anger, for to do so insults and trivializes all of our efforts. 
guilt is not a response to anger. Is it, a res- it, it is a response to one's own actions or lack of actions. And I've been feeling that really hard recently. And I just want to promote listening because I feel like that's a very sincere way forward is listening and learning and changing. Hell yeah. So that's my promo. That's right. <laughs> uh, and our episode on Audre Lorde because it's really good. And we go really deep into topics like that. And topics that are hard. Topics that are really difficult. And I think that's one of the whole points of this podcast is sometimes things like this are hard to talk about and we don't get them right all the time. But during our research process, that's what we're doing is listening to other women. And also, I I think it's crucial to think about the fact that, like, we are learning about these women and their struggles, but, like, there are black mothers who have to teach their five-year-olds about racism. Yeah. You know? And we got to wait until we were, you know, in our late 20s and 30s. Yeah. So really dig deep. Exactly. But if you're in the black community, you don't have that option. You have to learn about it right away. Exactly. So we love you. Thank you for yes, listening. Thank you for listening. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That's the best way to show your support for the show. Um, you can request a woman by emailing us at hirschfromtherocks at gmail.com or messaging us on any of the platforms. We've gotten so we many new requests. So on everything. Just reach out. Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn. We love you. You can email us. You can just message us. You can like things. You can talk to us on like under the pictures. Um, It's great. We love it. We do. And we want you to never forget that well-behaved women have a different flag on their front porch for every season. (laughs) And they never forget that. And we want you to never forget that those (laughs) women with their flags never make history. (laughs) They rarely make history. Goodbye. Episode four down. listening to her story on the rocks we are independently produced by 1986 entertainment and proudly recorded in baltimore maryland if there's a woman in history you would like us to cover you can email us at her story on the rocks at gmail.com you can also message us on twitter or instagram we post all of our cocktail recipes on tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us see you next week bye